Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When diplomacy fails, presents. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. This is the third part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the War of the Spanish Succession, which originally aired as one episode on the 27th of June, 2012. Welcome back to the War of the Spanish Succession, Episode 3. Last time we saw the opening moves of the Allies be complicated by the pesky Bavarians, until the Battle of Blenheim shattered the Franco-Bavarian line and forced Louis on the defensive. Although originally launched for the future of the throne of Spain, the war after the initial few years had come to resemble Louis's previous experiences, with campaigns and pressure points in the major theatres of North Italy, Flanders, the Rhine and Spain. With 1706 approaching, the Allies prepared to capitalise on the pressure which had been mounting from the previous months, while Louis prepared to dig in along his defensive line and divert troops to fill the gaps. I will now take you to early 1706. We have undergone a series of misfortunes from which France cannot recover except by a long peace, and the famine, which is the latest and greatest misfortune, has put us with our backs against the wall. There are no words, madame, to express such a pain. The king is pierced by it. The words of Louis's mistress, Madame de Maintenon, in a letter to a friend on the 14th of June, 1709. 
1706 was the war's most troubling year for Louis XIV of France, and thus the most successful year for the Allies. The combination of Marlborough, eagerly awaiting an opportunity to recapture his momentum after Blenheim, and Louis's eagerness to seek battle in the hopes that it would bring the expensive, draining war to a successful conclusion, meant that a battle would finally be had, but for Louis it would spell disaster. Marlborough straight up evicted the enemy from the Spanish Netherlands with the Battle of Ramillies in modern-day Belgium in May 1706. The victory didn't mean the end of French designs in the region, but it was certainly a short, sharp shock to Bourbon plans. In the battle, Marlborough used a combination of deception, tenacity and luck to bring home a victory, wherein 13,000 Bourbon soldiers, in comparison to less than 3,000 Allied soldiers, were lost. It was a devastating contrast, perhaps even more devastating than Blenheim had been. Louvain, Brussels, Malines, Lierre, Ghent, Alost, Dam, Oudenard, Bruges and Antwerp all fell to the Allies within a week of one another after the win, as one English observer put it, Towns that we thought would have endured a long siege are yielding without a stroke. With the French paralysed in Flanders and the surrounding regions, the forgotten aspect of the war was that Louis was now compelled to reshuffle his deck and transfer soldiers from quiet fronts to where they were more urgently needed. Because of the inherent need to plug the gaps, such as the one just opened in Flanders, critical weaknesses began to appear in the Bourbon lines as a result of Ramier. As the trickle of French soldiers from Italy became a flood, Eugene of Savoy was preparing for his own Ramier, but to direct it towards the now depleted French presence in North Italy. As he joined his new ally, the Duke of Savoy, he prepared 30,000 men against the French 41,000. By remaining unpredictable, and giving the appearance of digging in on numerous fronts to the north of the French camp, Eugene was able to deceive the French command, which was partly led by one of Louis's nephews, the Duke of Orléans. The Duke of Orléans couldn't tell which direction the Allies were coming from, so effectively he split his force to face in numerous directions. Thus, the French were probably in the worst tactical position they could have been in by the time Eugenius attacked. The French lost nearly 10,000 men in the route that followed, and Eugene rolled up every Bourbon settlement from Casal to Pavia in the weeks that followed. This battle of Turin, as it's called, effectively forced into being what was known as the Convention of Milan in March 1707, which effectively granted the entire Po Valley to the Allies. In a single battle, it seemed... Louis lost one of the key aspects of his strategy for the war, but taken together, these two Allied victories in May and September 1706 soundly defeated the French in two critical spheres and actually forced Louis to abandon the Italian front altogether, as French troops were so badly needed elsewhere. This was far from the only disaster to meet the Bourbons in that year, though. The Allies continued the pressure by moving to attack Spain over that summer, and an army sent out from Portugal capturing Madrid itself in June 1706. If 1705 meant a year of retreat for the Bourbons then, as the Allies closed in on some crucial seaside provinces, the seizure of the Spanish capital the year after must have seemed like checkmate. But the success was not to last, as Madrid was recaptured by Philip V and his subordinates, one of notable mention included James Fitzjames, the illegitimate son of the Catholic king James II of the House of Stuart, and Arabella Churchill, John Churchill's sister. For a time then, the Duke of Marlborough would have faced his nephew on the other side of the battlefield, had they ever fought face to face. 
It really was a small world in 18th century Europe. 1707 was to be another important year, as numerous events occurred in the diplomatic spheres of the war. Louis had been trying to urge the Allies to make peace following the year of disasters, which was 1706. At this high point in Allied fortunes, the Grand Alliance of the Dutch, English, Savoy, the Holy Roman Emperor and others demanded no peace without Spain, or in other words, no peace unless Louis agreed to depose his grandson, Philip V, from the Spanish throne in favour of the Archduke Charles, who wished to be crowned Carlos III of Spain. On the state formation front, events were ongoing too. England became Great Britain in July 1707, pooling the resources of both England and Scotland together, alongside other agreements which saw England pay Scotland's considerable debts, accumulated as a result of Scotland's failed colonial policies. A certain Swedish king, Charles XII, appeared on the radars of both sides when he marched into Saxony to force it out of the conflict that he had been waging in the Great Northern War at the same time. As if waking up to the opportunity that his appearance presented, both sides attempted to court Swedish power to their side in the war, but it was really a case of arrive, defeat, leave for Charles XII, as he disliked Louis's treatment of his Protestant minority Huguenots in France, and at the same time he had little interest in fighting a war in Western Europe as well as in Scandinavia. Charles XII returned to fight Russia later on in 1707, and as quickly as it began, the Swedish intrigue ended. In 1707, Eugene attempted to invade southern France, but he was stalled by a resilient and evasive French army. Allied defeats then started to come in, in Spain, with the Battle of Almansa, which forced the Allies out of that theatre of the war for the moment. The Bourbon war effort wasn't helped, though, thanks to the abortive move to try and get James III of the House of Stuart onto the throne of Britain, or at the very least Scotland. From the 1st of May 1707, Scotland and England had been unified into Britain. Henceforth, all references to that entity become historically accurate, though no doubt Scottish historians still wince when one refers to the polity simply as England, which I won't do. Notwithstanding the technicalities, the Act of Union was something of a headache for Louis, who now recognised that he would have to go for broke and take the entire kingdom for James Stuart if he wanted to help him out. In spite of this, it also pushed the Scottish malcontents into action, since many that did believe in the cause of the old pretender, as James III was known, did so out of the idea that Scottish interests would be better served not welded to those of England. In the years before, Louis' agents had undertaken a kind of campaign whereby they contacted allies in Scotland and attempted to gather support and signatures for a landing by the exiled Stuart. The plan for the venture of installing the Catholic James III was as military as it was dynastic, and it was based upon matters of principle for Louis and his son, who, if you'll remember before, hadn't been entirely on board with the idea of supporting yet another Stuart venture before the war broke out, for fear of inviting Britain's ire and provoking London to make war. Now that war was in play, though, Louis had little to lose by making Britain more upset with his interference in their home affairs. To this end, the Duke of Berwick, James III's illegitimate half-brother, was chosen to command the forces earmarked for the invasion of Scotland in the House of Stuart's name. Louis's contact in Scotland was Nathaniel Hook, an experienced Scottish traveller and negotiator who sympathised with the Stuart cause. As if pressed to act with great haste after the passing of the Act of Union, 
Hook took it upon himself to gather the very public support of Scottish nobles, who signed on the dotted line and thus vindicated Louis's venture, as well as the old pretender's dreams. On the 1st of August 1707, Hook travelled to Paris, where he met the important French officials, charged with holding up their end of the adventure. The first concrete plans were finally outlined. James III would land in Scotland to the fanfare of loyal clans and much of the public, whereupon he would march southwards and capture Newcastle. Newcastle contained supplies of what were referred to as sea coal, the resource which would later acquire such a monumental importance for the British industrial state, but which at this point in time was associated with the lighting of cheap, smoggy fires and a relatively easy access to warmth. This resource, in Hook's mind, was so necessary for firing in London that the inhabitants of that place could not be deprived of them for six weeks without being reduced to the greatest extremity. Deprive the country of its primary coal reserve in Newcastle, and by winter the nation would resemble a host of freezing malcontents. That was the Jacobite plan, at least. Louis's further justification for the widening of the war to the British Isles was the simple need to divert British attention away from his designs, in the hope that Britain would be distracted long enough for France to acquire some much-needed breathing space. This single diversion, the memorandum written for the venture declared, will force England to instantly recall the troops and ships which they employ in different countries against your majesty. Further financial incentives were also considered. By invading the British homeland, Louis hoped that the financially conscious British would be driven even further into the debt which they so feared, saying, It will entirely destroy the credit of the Exchequer bills and of the commerce of the City of London, upon which all sums employed against His Majesty are achieved, and would in turn soon force the Dutch, upon whom alone the weight of the war would fall, to ask a peace from His Majesty. It would be wrong to present the Scots as universally welcoming of this Franco-Stuart scheme. Certainly they would have recognised the very blatant tones of self-interest on the part of Louis, which the whole venture smacked of. One Scottish noble, in particular the Duke of Hamilton, did not support the scheme, but this was because, in the mind of Hook at least, the Duke does not act sincerely, and even harboured ambitions for the Scottish crown himself. Not willing to have his name blackened by Hook, Hamilton wrote a revealing letter in early August 1707 to Louis XIV's court, wherein he stated, As to the proposal made by Colonel Hook to give 5,000 men, I cannot approve it. If Scotland alone were aimed at, I should not make this difficulty about it, but it is not worthwhile to come to Scotland alone. England is the object, and although the Union has disposed the west of Scotland, favourable to the King, yet that does not remedy the other inconveniences or difficulties with regard to England. Again, the plan seemed to stall with Louis's own hesitation, as he considered the inherent risk involved in sending these perfectly viable soldiers away from France. His wily mistress, Madame de Maintenon, it was said, was the one partly capable of convincing him in the end. A wealthy French banker offered him one million livres for the whole undertaking on the back of this approval, but it would not be until early spring 1708 that the venture got off the ground, in this curious but potentially deadly sideshow of the war for the Spanish throne. Despite an attack of measles, the old pretender and his sizeable flotilla embarked for Newcastle and Scottish pastures new in early March 1708. 
In the unfortunate weather conditions and errors made by the French admirals at the time, James was still able to come within sight of the Scottish shore and begged to be led to land. Were he allowed to do so, 20,000 men stood ready to rally to his flag, James said, and no army sizable enough existed in Britain to stop his march down south. But as he waited in his smaller flotilla near the Firth of Forth just in view of Leith, it was understood that the other portion of the flotilla had made a critical navigation error and had turned to Aberdeen, many hundreds of miles to the north. Thus, with only a fraction of his force in place and the English fleet soon to bear down on him, James still demanded he be allowed to land, but the French admirals were getting cold feet at this stage and they refused, so the old pretender was forced to bitterly watch the shore escape from view. The Duke of Berwick, the man originally chosen to command the venture on land, later commented on the failure that The material point was that the troops should Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavour That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here And it's time to say hello to something fresh And guilt free Hello fresh Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken Or garlic butter shrimp scampi Now that's music to my mouth Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. ...and with the young king. All Scotland expected him with impatience and was ready to take up arms in his favour. What is more, England was at that time entirely unprovided with troops so that he might have advanced without resistance into the north where numbers of considerable persons had promised to join him. The consternation was so great in London that the bank was like to break, every man hastening to withdraw his money, but the news of the ill success of the enterprise soon restored the credit of the government. Indeed, word soon emerged in spring 1708 of the close shave Britain had had with the Jacobite invasion, and how only French mistakes and English naval supremacy saved the day. For Louis, just as much as James III, the failure was a bitter one. Having spent so much materials, money and time on the enterprise, seeing it fail must have seemed like the last hope of a failing war effort going up in smoke. Indeed, the French peace overtures, through the Dutch, where the Grand Pensionary of Holland listened to French offers, were ramped up over the summer of 1708, but for reasons other than this failure here. 1707, in the War of the Spanish Succession, was less difficult to define as a year of victory or defeat for either side, though Louis certainly deserves credit for hanging on after the disasters of the year before. 
Although Marlborough couldn't repeat or even follow up on his successes in Flanders, the Rhine saw more action. In fact, the major Bourbon victory of the year must be considered as the Siege of Stolhofen, an important fortress which protected the German lands and housed 20,000 Allied troops along its nine-mile length. So convinced was the Allied commander, Louis of Baden, in that fortress's strength, that he had his house built just behind its ramparts. The formidable task of reducing this fortress was put to that of the Duke of Villars, who commanded his force of 30,000 men in an ingenious campaign of misdirection and deception, even scheduling a grand ball replete with pomp and ceremony mere days before the major thrust of the campaign was about to begin, to give the impression that the French soldiers had absolutely no intention of attacking. By the 23rd of May, less than 24 hours after the attack began amidst a large cloud of fog, Villars sufficiently punched a hole in the massive fortress wall wide enough to pour over its structures to the north. By the time the fog lifted, Villars realised that the Allied commander had evacuated with his 20,000 men rather than remain cut off. Just like that then, one of the most formidable Rhine structures had fallen to the French. The real prize was not the prestige that this would bestow on French arms though, It was instead the contributions which the French forces who had just captured the entire fortress could now levy from German lands surrounding Stahlhofen and no longer protected by it, and immediately Villars set to work. By mid-June, Württemberg, Baden and Dorlach agreed to pay individual contributions valued in the hundreds of thousands, thus giving the French war effort the financial jolt in the arm that it so badly needed at this stage. On the other hand, though, in Italy, Eugene and Victor Amadeus seized Naples itself in 1707 and launched the next phase of their plan to pick apart the Franco-Spanish alliance with an invasion of Provence, in the southeast of France, with the major target being Toulon. After months of campaigning, Eugene resolved to call the whole thing off by late August. Louis claimed the failure as a French victory, since he had managed to occupy what proved to be the major arm of the Allied initiative that year, but since Louis seems to have spent these freed resources on the aforementioned failure that was the invasion of Britain, in James III's name, the two incidents arguably balance each other out. Spain was another story, though. The Allies lost the Battle of Almanza on the 25th of April in an underrated defeat which ended up costing them all of their previous gains in Spain, much like the French defeat at Turin the year earlier, cost the French their Italian theatre. Philip, Louis's grandson, had chased the Allies to the Portuguese border by the time the summer heat arrived, marking 1707 as a kind of mixed bag for Bourbon and Allied fortunes alike. In 1708, little of consequence would occur in either the Rhine in Savoy or in Spain, but the attentions of both sides swung security back to Flanders as a result, where Bourbon disaster ensued. It was here that Marlborough's genius struck again, and at the Battle of Oudenard on the 11th of July, he trounced the Bourbons, costing them at least 15,000 men in the process and forcing their major armies back into Ghent, which the French had managed to seize back themselves earlier in the year. The real story of the year, though, was in autumn 1708, when after capitalising on the success enjoyed after Oudenard, Allied forces managed to capture Lille, a critical fortress considered one of the Ring of Steel which secured France from invasion. 
By the 30th of December 1708, when Ghent fell, Bourbon forces were almost entirely absent from the Spanish Netherlands. Added to this, the Holy Roman Empire's forces finally put down the Hungarian revolt in early August 1708, which had been supported up to this point, wouldn't you just know it, with money and materials by Louis XIV. With Hungary pacified, Vienna was now able to turn all of its attention back to the French and their intrigues along the Rhine, a prospect which, coupled with failures in Flanders, made Versailles far less positive about what 1709 held in store for France. The year did not begin well for any power not sufficiently prepared in winter 1708-09, because one of the coldest winters on record during this era froze crops in the ground and ruined the harvest, destroying any sense of normality where food production was concerned. For those with the luxury of stockpiles, the impact was not so severe, but for states like Louis, who had geared their stocks towards war and depended on the regular influx of grain to survive, the famine was catastrophic, and coming off the military disasters of the previous year, it was the last thing that Louis needed. As if sensing his weakness, the Allies returned with the same stringent terms as before, demanding that Louis depose his grandson and hand the throne of Spain to Archduke Charles. In addition to this, Louis would have to evacuate a list of fortresses along the French border, thereby removing its lines of defence, and all the Allies would promise was a two-month truce in return for this. As a last poke in the eye, Louis would have to use his own soldiers to remove Philip from Spain if Philip would not go himself. Contrary to the historical view, it was this last measure, rather than Philip's abdication in itself, that Louis found himself fundamentally unable to adhere to. Representing France at these negotiations at The Hague was Jean-Baptiste Colbert, the grandson of the great Colbert from the Dutch War and War of the Grand Alliance fame, and one of the ablest negotiators of his generation. Considering the dire state of France and the tenacity this Colbert had in getting the best deals possible, we can see shades of Talleyrand at the Congress of Vienna in him, but Colbert's experience was no less frustrating than Talleyrand's would be. Recognising that the odds were not in the French favour by early 1709, but accepting that Louis had little options left also, Colbert wrote a series of illuminating letters home to Versailles over the summer period, when negotiations were at their height. It was at the end of the month of April, Colbert later recalled in a review of 1709, Continuing, And the imminent opening of the campaign only held out the final misfortunes to be feared. Everyone believed that we would see the enemy advance during the coming summer, right to the gates of Paris. We discussed the options that were open to the king and the places to which he could retreat in order to find any security. Those melancholy reasonings were based on the general want of everything. Money was lacking, the arsenals were empty, no provision was made for supplies and the winter... The winter, more harsh than had been seen within the memory of man, had destroyed the hope of harvesting crops, which the freeze, following the thaw, had killed in the earth. Goodwill, ruined by misery, could no longer be found among the troops, and capable generals, if there were any, were extremely rare. Yet, as Colbert explained later on in life, the lure of peace wasn't so strong so long as the stringent and humiliating terms of peace awaited France. After battling for so many years, it seemed nearly impossible to give up without the promise of at least something beneficial after war. 
It was, however, continued Colbert, necessary to go to war without any means of sustaining it. We were no better off for making peace, at least not on terms that could not be said in any way to approximate to reasonableness. The sufferings of his majesty seemed to me so acute that I proposed him myself to go to Holland, in anticipation of the dismal conferences I had with men intoxicated with their own good fortune. In Winston Churchill's own biography of his ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough, Winnie makes the generous distinction, during the course of these peace negotiations, that French offers to Marlborough of vast estates and lands across Sicily and Naples, including a precise tariff on goods entering in and out of those lands, were a reward rather than a bribe to make peace. That French agents undoubtedly understood Marlborough's importance to the Allied war effort is palpable. They would promise him the moon if it meant removing him from Allied high command. Colbert, in his letters to Louis, makes the point that in those heady days of 1709, when everything seemed to be coming apart for France, the world and his wife wanted to wring concessions from the Sun King for one reason or another, saying, Every sovereign prince assumes that he has the right to formulate his claims against France, and would even consider himself dishonoured if he had extorted nothing to the injury of the French crown. Churchill, for his part, reasoned that, when we look back, and on the long years of terror and spoliation to which these princes had been subjected, it would be surprising if they had acted otherwise. Indeed, Churchill makes a reasonable point to counter Colbert's hysteria. Louis wasn't the only one who had to show his people something for their years of suffering. Much of Europe, and especially the neighbours of France, all longed for peace, and they had all been put through the ringer in previous decades because of Louis's ambitions. Now that they had the opportunity to stick it to the Sun King and that man's moment of weakness, they can hardly be blamed for not passing up the opportunity. It should also be added that the Allies couldn't very well go home from these peace ventures without anything to show for it, and it was at least hoped, even with all these years of war and the poverty that resulted from it, that the peace terms Louis would agree to would free up some money that the Allies could then use to butter their populations up with, and use to prove that, yes, the war had been worth it, after all. Ian Dunlop, in his biography of Louis XIV, made the point that, by 1709, Louis was reaping where he had sown, but vindictiveness, however understandable, is seldom a good basis for policy. A person or nation can be driven too far, and the policy can become counterproductive. Winston Churchill identifies the moment at which that point was reached. It was over the question of Louis's grandson and the Spanish throne. Not only did Louis find it unpalatable to evict his own grandson from Spain, he also increasingly came to see it as an impossible option, because Spain in the years since has largely rallied around the Bourbon prince Philip, leaving the Allies in the difficult position of forcing the issue or admitting defeat. Perhaps because accepting Philip seemed like such a bitter pill to swallow, especially considering the fact that the war had been launched in the name of that throne, the Allies sought to go against the grain almost in spite of the peace, knowing full well that the Spanish people would fight for Philip if necessary. Thus the fighting went on, with grand Allied plans for the campaigning year, or what remained of it, in 1709. What followed this determination to fight on was the unusual step Louis took in communicating his reasons for continuing the war, a move rarely, if ever taken by European rulers at the time, and certainly not by the rulers of France. 
Louis, in the event, sent two letters, one to the Archbishop of Paris and others to the provincial governors of France, wherein he would write, famously, Although the tenderness for my peoples is no less strong than that I have for my own children, and although I have made all of Europe see that I desire to let them enjoy peace, I am persuaded that they would, themselves, refuse to receive it on conditions so contrary to the justice and honour of the French name. My intention is, therefore, that all those who, for so many years, have given me signs of their zeal by contributing their efforts, their goods, and their blood to undertake such a burdensome war, should know that all that my enemies proposed to give in return for my offers was a suspension of arms which would procure them advantages greater than what they could have expected from keeping their troops on campaign. This appeal was distributed across the realm and was posted throughout the kingdom so that the public could view it. Enthusiastic purchasers bought vast stores of the document and delivered them in the public squares and churches of France. This, many historians have noted, was the beginning of the French people rallying to Louis' side and supporting the war against the invasions of their enemies. But the truth is actually far more complex than this apparently universal truth and turning phase of the war that is often portrayed. Above all, what 1709 represented was a watershed moment in the course of the war. For seven long years, armies had marched and pillaged their way across the continent. When reading the sources, I was regularly amazed by how many men were consistently available for impressment into the armies, or how some states like Bavaria managed to field any army at all. Predictably, though, the maintenance of such armies was done at the expense of law and order, or of productivity and of the day-to-day endurance of trade and common society. In scenes reminiscent of the Thirty Years' War, the land was ravaged for the sake of the soldier, so that the soldier could ravage in the name of the war. In circumstances such as these, the average labourer, peasant or trader was caught in the middle. It therefore remained to be seen, as 1709 wore on, whether France could hold on, or whether its citizens truly had had enough. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.